And then I remember getting into the studio and actually listening to my voice for the first time, which was strange. Like I had never listened to my voice played out to me. And that I think was like a powerful moment for me because I was just like, I do have a voice. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. I'm pretty excited about my guests in this episode. So I'm Temi. I'm a former uh, and current, I think, radio rookie. I attend Queens College. I major in political science. And I'm Kari Pitkin. I'm the senior producer of Radio Rookies at WNYC. So certainly around New York and uh, most likely nationally, people have heard of WNYC as an award-winning radio station that does some amazing programming. What a lot of people don't know is that it's also the home to Radio Rookies, which is... um, to me, one of the most impressive production-centered uh, youth experiences that I've ever uh, come to know. And I'm grateful in this episode to talk with one of uh, the super talented uh, alumni youth reporters from Radio Rookies and um, the senior producer who also has a uh, long history um, in the founding of the program, uh, Kari Pitkin, who, by the way, uh, was a tremendous help uh, as I got started with No Such Thing uh, and needed somebody to call about uh, getting started. Uh, somebody who doesn't have a background in journalism and, um, you know, asking questions over audio as a medium. Kari was such a big help. So uh, this is a huge pleasure for me. And it turns out that um, it did not disappoint. Temi is short for Temateo Fagbenle. Uh, She is such a huge talent. And I think you're going to really love some of the stories she tells about uh, being a young reporter. Uh, With Kari, I go deep, uh, deeper anyway, um, into what it takes to produce uh, one of these stories and also to produce a youth program uh, the way that that she does uh, at Rookies. So one thing I want to note is that I asked Temi this question uh, early on about a story she did on um, Stop and Frisk and how she her she was really changing her mind as the story un, unraveled. And I just wanted to make a correction that uh, if you're listening to the stories in that are mentioned in this episode and you want to get your hands on the one that I'm talking about, it's actually the one she does on uh, Vertical Patrols. Uh, I encourage you to listen to both of them because they are amazing. Check out this interview. Guys, thank you for being here. Radio Rookies is sort of a rock star in our space of um, youth-serving organizations that are uh, committed to helping young people and support uh, uh, the identities that that they find valuable and meaningful in their lives. And and, uh, Radio Rookies has been along... uh, around for a long time and uh, you guys have been committed to one area of this work in digital learning that I'm most fired up about which is helping young people tell their own stories and and see storytelling as a tool for uh, empowerment and um, realizing themselves in the world. Um, Kari, you have been at uh, Radio Rookies for how long? Uh, I guess it's over 10 years now. I've been at WNYC for 20 years. 20 years. And NYC has such a great, uh, great tradition and focus, but, um, rookies, uh, like last night I'm, I'm doing some research. Uh, you guys have, uh, and a lot of these are your awards, Temi, or teams that you've been involved with. Radio Impact Award, uh, National Association of Black Journalists, Casey Medals, America's Promise Alliance, Newspaper Guild. Um, this is like no joke reporting that's happening at The Rookies. And so uh, I'm doing that. I'm listening to episodes in the last few weeks, getting just kind of getting ready to have this conversation. And I'm, I have always been sort of a fanboy of what... 
Radio Rookies does. Uh, but to have Temi here, who I've known since you were a teenager and and uh, were joining us for things like Emoticon, uh, where young people come out and demo amazing social action projects using digital media and technology. Um, and Kari, I've known for a long time. Um, but this is uh, just a great chance for me to focus a little bit with you guys on rookies and this amazing legacy. So, um, Kari, can you just tell us a little bit about Radio Rookies and this incredible history of supporting young people and their storytelling? Yeah. So, Rookies started back in 1999, and um, my mentor and friend was a journalist, Marianne McCune. She's a journalist in the WNYC newsroom. And she had the thought of, you know, she had just come out of Columbia J School and she was thinking about all the things she had learned while there and thought, well, what if you somehow taught teenagers some of this and had them report within their own life. So there were already models of giving equipment to kids. Some people at Dave Isay had done that with Get a Life 101. Mm -hmm. Joe Richmond with Teen Radio Diaries had done a lot of that and was a friend of Marianne. So she definitely, there were influences and it was a little in the ether of audio work. Yeah. Um, and of course, Youth Radio in California, which has such a been such a um, sort of game changer there. But um, but the idea then of really kind of working with people on close documentary work over time. And so she got the WNYC said, sure, you could try it. And she partnered with a photography group up in Harlem. And that was the first workshop of um, it didn't have the name Radio Rookies yet. And then we got some funding and it's sort of like from there, it really turned into an actual ongoing program within the station. And over the years, you know, we've worked with hundreds of kids and we basically you know, our mission has always been to bring like a strong youth voice and youth reporting and storytelling to a broad general audience. And then equally as a part of that is the development of those young people that we're working with. So mm. it's always been this really 50-50 mission and we haven't really separated them. Yeah. If you had one thing you're hoping every young person is walking away with uh, who comes through the rookies, what do you hope it is? Um, that's an excellent question. I immediately thought of about three things, but, um, uh, I mean, it's kind of corny, but I do think the value of their own voice and their own story, um, would probably be, uh, the, the one sort of central thing. And then there's obviously a million other things about speaking truth to power and asking difficult questions and, uh, and also what it means to dedicate yourself to something over a long time, over a long period of time and mm. what that work means. Cause it's not just about like sitting down and telling a story. It's about a deep inquiry. And Temi can speak to that. I mean, she has been in the trenches of the work of it. Um, so that the value of that as well. Yeah. So that's not one thing, but <laughs> no. So Temi, is that what they're doing? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, as someone, I think I joined radio rookies when I was 16 so when you're 16, I don't think you really understand yet then um, just, as you said, the value of your voice. Um, I remember there was this one time um, where I had recorded Vox. Like I was just asking random people questions. Yeah, for, yeah. for folks who don't know what that is. Yeah, it's a, oh yeah, so you, you go out, you have a question, and you ask strangers this question when you're 16 this seems like very harrowing when you're 26 <laughs> when you're 36 a lot of people really that's a hard thing yeah, to so do it was it was scary and then i remember getting into the studio and actually listening to my voice for the first time which was strange like mm. i had never listened to my voice played out to me and that i think was like a powerful moment mm. for me because i was just like i do have a voice that exists outside of, I don't know, it was weird. So I, I thought that was interesting, um, just having to like work at something, right? Like having a project, like I had never had something that I was, that was mine, was sort of my brainchild that I was creating. So that was nice. Yeah. So looking back now that you're, uh, you're a junior this year? I'm a 
senior senior ish <laughs> senior ish uh, at Queens College and uh, studying political science. Mm-hmm. Somebody who is traveling the world. You rattled off uh, since your sophomore year or something in college. You rattled off before before we came online to to chat. Uh, like a half a dozen countries at least that you've been to in the last couple of years. Yeah. So um, looking back with all of that now under your belt, what do you think is the the most meaningful thing you took from your experience with the rookies? Definitely just being able to ask questions, right? So now I realize when I speak to people, um, and I, I get a lot of flack for this from my friends. I'm, I'm sort of interviewing my friends on whatever I'm speaking to them about. Um, so it'll it'll be a topic, and I'll I'll go off on these like I don't know like my friend the other day she said something like I don't like the color blue, mm. and I asked her, well like what has blue ever done to you? And then <laughs> no, I mean like this was like a 45 minute conversation that could have. I could have just not have asked that question. Mm. And I think that's that's the main thing that Radio Rookies has taught me is to just ask questions. It's sort of taught me how to have a conversation, mm. like better conversations, more effective, like time effective conversations with people, which has helped me in my travels because people tend to like you and they feel that you're interested in them. Mm-hmm. I, I have so many questions for you, but uh, do you feel like you were a, a conversationalist before you started the program? Uh, I'm I'm trying to remember. Like my memories of pre sixteen yeah. are getting hazy yeah. now. Um, I don't think I was a conversationalist, but I did talk a lot. I wasn't a good conversationalist. I Got was it. a good talker. Got it. I just so how how did enough. you tell me how how did you come to uh, the program. I think a lot of uh, the way that the nonprofit space works and uh, K-12 education programming often works is uh, we have amazing students like Temi who thrive in a program. And then, you know, in the way that we're sort of um, cornered into telling stories about the impact on youth, it uh, sounds as though, uh, you know, your program was the only experience that uh, was was impacting the young people who come through it, or or uh, so. I'm always interested, and I always ask, what what was kind of the what did your ecosystem look like before you came into rookies? Were you doing other programs? Were you uh, fired up about stuff you were doing at school? Were you um, into journalism? So I was 16. I remember, so my school, my high school is really interesting. It's a like alternative. Uh, I went to Vanguard High School, and it's sort of like an alternative high school. I think their focus was getting kids out and um, putting them in programs and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I was just testing the waters with a lot of things. Um, I was taking, um, at the time, actually, when I was accepted into Radio Rookies, um, I was taking a college course at um, John Jay, and I had to decide between continuing this college course mm-hmm. or doing Radio Rookies. And ultimately, I dropped the college course, mm. which was probably like the greatest decision of my life thus far. Mm. Um, That's pretty high praise. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was a really good decision. I remember at the time, I was just like, oh, my God, I'm abandoning this college course. Mm. For like this, like, I don't know, it just seemed like more flippant, right? Like this idea of Radio Rookies over like yeah, take this, like, college course mm-hmm. while you're in high school. Like, yeah. So it was... Like a sure thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you got to do that, yeah. Um, so were you thriving in high school? Like, were you super engaged or somewhere in the um, middle? Um. Did I like high school is what you're asking me. How'd you did do as a, as as a, a student, student? Yeah. I was, I was a pretty good student, I would say. I was, like, a, I don't know, A, B minus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, I started off as an A and then like I started dwindling down, but it, it wasn't, it was just mostly because I just stopped attending school. Yeah. 
Um, so actually, I think radio rookies was probably one of the things that kept me in school because I just started losing interest in attending school. Mm. But you had real connections at your high school with some of the yeah. teachers. Like it was a very special school and probably a great fit in certain ways for you. Yeah, for I'd me, say, you know, like for me it was. It really um, was a. Yeah, it's, it's like if I didn't go to school, like a, my teacher or like my homeroom teacher would like text me and say, "Hey, you know." Where were you? So it's like you couldn't just like not, not show up. Right. But I, I did a pretty good job at not showing up though. I and and Vanguard is in uh, the Upper East Side. Upper East Side. We will link to Vanguard's uh, website just so that people can check it out. Um, Highly recommended. Yeah. One of the things that struck me, and I'm sure strikes everybody about the rookie's stories, is that you were like you were 16 and 17 when you were covering. Uh, so there's a story on kids smoking weed, sexual cyberbullying, slut shaming, stop and frisk, crime and guns. You did a teens and sleep uh, that I thought was really cool as a concept um, that was when i was not sleeping at all so right it was interesting how did how did these topics that you were covering gel with uh what teachers and uh people at home when you were like here's the work i've been spending all this time after school on well it was did the needle fall off the record or, no, or was no, it like these are these are things that i just talk about with my friends none of it was Surprising, I think, to the people who surrounded me because these are the things that I discussed. These are just the things that come to my mind. And that's the reason why I think with Radio Rookies, like a lot of the younger, a lot of the young folks who come into Radio Rookies, like they do stories about themselves. I don't find my life that interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting to report on sort of the observations that I notice. Yeah. And so that was, I think my first story was Stop and Frisk. It was really, it was a really big talking point back then. I remember. Yeah. Um, I think it happens less now, or maybe people just have got, grown used to it. But like, I think there's a different conversation happening. Like, stop and frisk was the precursor to like the larger issue yeah. of like um, police violence. But this was like 2012, before people were really like, okay, like the cops are like shooting people. Like this is, this is ridiculous. Um, and I thought that was just, like, fascinating, right, to report on from my, especially from my perspective as a 16-year-old and as someone who's, like, now starting to see that these things happen in the world. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to a clip from that. Radio Rookies went to five neighborhoods in the Bronx and talked to more than 20 people on the street. And the only ones who had never been stopped and frisked by police were two women. A lot of girls don't get stopped and frisked. A black albino boy. They don't do nothing to me. And a six-year-old girl. She says she likes the police, but... I see on the news that people, they have fights with the cops. They don't like the cops. The rest of the people we talked to were black or Latino men who had all been stopped. I fit the description of every crime that happens in New York City. Like. So you, you think you're targeted because of your skin I'm color? I'm African-American, yes. And because my pants sag and I got a hat on, I got braids. So have you ever been stopped and frisked and have the police ever used force against you? Of course, like plenty of times. It's not just a question of why they're being stopped. It's also the way they're being stopped. One cop grabbed me, threw me on the wall searched me, put his hands in my pants. And one of the cops tried to push my face into the wall, into the concrete wall. They threw me on the ground, had their hands on my neck. We talked to a lot of guys in the 44th Precinct in the West Bronx. According to police reports gathered by the New York Times, police use force there during stop and frisk more than anywhere else in the city. Your mind, the way that that story unfolds, you kind of changed your mind as you reported on that story, if, if I read it right, right? Uh, by read it, I mean listen to it right. Um, you kind of went into it uh, with yeah. one perspective as a teen where it's like, well, if the police are doing it, it must be like there's a... there's uh, there should be trust there that there's a reason for doing it. And there was a there was a moment in the story where you started to change your mind and where you land uh, was very different than where you started. I don't know. It's probably a long time since yeah, you listened yeah, to that story. It is. Yeah, I think that's, that's funny that you make that observation because to me it almost chronicles like this change from like 
the ignorant child, right, who's like, the police, they would never do anything wrong. That's not possible to, like, sort of a, um, a young adult who's like, wow, like, questioning authority. Right? Uh-huh. Like, that is what that story chronicles. Yeah. The 16-year-old is like, the cops could never do anything wrong. If the cops are doing it, then it must be for the greater good. And so, like, wow, maybe, like, the man, right, or the government doesn't mm-hmm. have it all right. So. But the thing that struck me about that was that it felt um, your transformation over the course of that story was very transparent. And I think a lot of teens would be very self-conscious about even approaching that and, and having an opinion and saying, like, oh, no, I trust the cops or um, or I don't trust just anything about it, just putting their ideas out there. But then you were super transparent and there was a process for kind of like reflection where it's like, you know, now I'm hearing this and part of what makes a great story is, and, and sort of the arc of a story is sharing what you're finding along the way. And so my question for you is, um, do you think that that, um, that story and ones that came after it and the process of, as a journalist of sort of uncovering details and then having to be transparent and reflective about them changed how you just make meaning about things generally. Right. So it's like gathering information and drawing your own conclusions about it and like having the agency to have an opinion about something. Yeah. Um, whether Whether it flows with where everybody else is at right, or not. exactly. I've always been a very opinionated person, though. I think this is the reason why people don't really like... They didn't really like me as a child. I was a very opinionated child. Um, so I don't think, um, as I went into Radio Rookies, this necessarily... I, I just think this is just who I am, right? I just uh, take information and I'll say, like, this is my opinion of it. And then if given new information then I'll change my opinion of it and it'll all be very transparent. And I'll say, yeah, like, I used to think that, but now I think this because I have this new piece of information. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, uh, but opinionated people, sorry to interrupt you, but opinionated people often have a really hard time being transparent about the fact that they've changed their mind. Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm always very... I tell people, you know, my favorite quote is, um, of course, like, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. Um, because it's that pretty much just sums up who I am. Like yeah. I just don't. I'm I'm ignorant about many things. I'll tell people that. Like I know some things maybe, mm-hmm. but I'm ignorant about a massive amount of information. So it's like if, like my opinion honestly changes with the day, mm. the time of day, um, with the months, with the weeks. Yeah, Kari. My question on on some of this stuff is. Um, you know, you're running a program for teens. They're covering some serious topics that the best journalists at NYC and at the time, you know, at, at uh, the best um, are out there covering. But that can be dangerous. It can also be, um, you know, some of these topics are, are difficult to agree on. Um, how do you, as somebody who's running a program and dealing with parents, and has it been difficult, or or is it always positive that, um, you know, that kids are covering the kind of stuff that they want, and um, that they're in some cases, you know, out there in places where shootings took place a couple of months ago, or or whatever whatever they're reporting on. Um, I mean, there's a lot in that question, so let me try to break yeah. it down. I mean. I would say when it comes to um, like difficult topics, let's start there and then we'll talk about the safety concerns. Um, I mean, of course, we're going to go for difficult topics because if if something is easy, there's probably not much of an inquiry or much of a like we always want a driving question. What are you trying to find out? What are you trying to understand? And then also, what do you you know, what's your take? How are you Mm. deepening the 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 listeners thinking or understanding. Um, so, yeah, I mean, any that's kind of without any sort of point of tension or difficulty, most likely there it would be hard to find a story. Sometimes you might find something and just something that's super light, but that's kind of rare, and it's kind of rare that someone can do that really well. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the nature of the 
beast. Has it ever come up that a parent has a concern or, um, you know, yes. And when kids have taken on things that are very difficult and very personal, we have definitely made sure that a parent has heard uh, a version of the story. Um, For example, we did a story many years ago with a teenage girl who it was about something else, but it, it was important to tell the fact that she had had an abortion at the age of, I think, 14. Um, we didn't, she wanted to use her real name. We didn't want that because we didn't mm. want a future employer to Google her on the first thing that comes up. And w- we don't know what that person's politics yeah. would be, whatever. So we had her use a different name and we had her mom listen to the story beforehand because she's a minor, you know, and this is really sensitive stuff. So we're not just like, oh, we're just going to go out there and tell any story. We also had a story of a, we did a 10 years after September 11th, we did a series of stories about issues dealing with um, September 11th and the effect on people who had sort of come of age in that time. And there was um, one of our participants' brother had been killed on September 11th. And, you know, it was obviously incredibly emotional Mm. story for the family and different people had really different experiences of what the aftermath of what happened and so like his mom heard it had different takes but then like ultimately what she needed from us was it didn't subvert his reporting or storytelling we were able to find a place where we could still do what we needed to do but we were respectful of the fact that like we were stepping into the middle of people's lives Mm. um I think the most that doesn't feel frustrating or hard. It feels like that's just a part of the work, and it's kind of what we've taken on in the doing the kind of journalism we do. The one time that I felt more kind of, I think, what you were asking about, which we partnered with a school, and some of the kids started reporting on some stuff that was sensitive for the school, mm. and I got a call from like the principal and the vice principal who had prior to the calling me, had pulled a kid out of class and brought them to the principal's office. Which, If you can imagine how intimidating, a sophomore who had just started there, how mm. intimidating that would be. And they basically were like, you have to shut this down kind wow. of thing. And that was, that was um, I learned a lot in that mm. process. But in terms of like physical safety, yeah, we're concerned if there's ever a time we think that there's, we, do, we would never ask a kid to do something that we thought was dangerous for them. And we had a girl, a young woman, reporting on being in an abusive relationship. And at a certain point, she wanted to interview her abuser. And we we didn't encourage it. And she didn't, ultimately. And I think that was the right thing. What do you think? Do you have one story? Like, what, what was the story that so tugged at the initial reason and ideals and um, ideas behind this program that you were like, yes, this is why we're doing this and this is why it's important. Can you think of one? No, but I'm going to mention Temmie's because she's sitting right here. So, um, and and this is honestly would be in my in my very short list, um, which is her story on sexual cyberbullying, um, and I think what she achieved so well in that piece, which is a huge goal of rookies, is she was able to report a story in a way that an adult reporter could not have told that story, period, end of sentence, which is that she was able, through her reporting, to get access to voices, to perspectives, that it was through her, like, deep curiosity, which she's spoken to, but also her proximity and the trust, you know, that was like, because mm-hmm. she was their classmate and because, you know, they, they yeah, wanted to talk of, to her. I think of that story now. Um, and there's just no way, even at the age of 21, I wouldn't be able to report that story today. I don't think. I mean, um, tell about some of the tape that you got that you think speaks to that. Cause I think that's so uh, the story on sexual cyberbullying, I actually got a girl who was, um, I think she was in this relationship with this guy, and then like he leaked a video of her, and it was a whole big thing in our school. And I got tape with her, I interviewed her. And then in the same story, I gathered a group of girls um, in my school, um, and I was just like, hey, like, what is your opinion on this issue? And so it was very raw. Like, it was, like, literally, like, yeah, no, I think that, that, that is a slut if she does this. And I just don't think that 
as um, that today I would get that same rawness, right? Mm. Like because teenagers speak differently around teenagers versus even someone who's like two years older. Yeah. So I got it. Like this is what teenagers are actually saying. This is what they're doing. It isn't like looking at the actions of teenagers through the lens of a adult. Yeah. So it wasn't diluted. This yeah. is like them in their purity. Or them them playing the part of somebody answering a question on TV or on the radio. Yeah, exactly. It's it's literally us just sitting around, yeah. like shooting the bull or whatever. Here's a clip from that. Now, once it gets to a social media network, it's over for her life. Yeah, I think that's wrong, right? I gathered a group of girls in my school to talk about slut shaming online. They be getting exposed, like. <laughs> Girls often feel they need to shame other girls for their improper behavior. Girls do it to themselves. Half the time we came and blame guys. Like she was already looking into the camera smiling. But it's not always the girl's fault. There's people that they don't know when they're taking the picture. There's people that don't know they're getting recorded. That's not fair that a guy can actually hide his phone, have sex with you, and record you, and then show it to his friends like, yo, look. They don't care. What were the stories for you that had the most impact where, where and it could maybe you're working on stories now that you feel like this um, just perspective changing or a, a moment where you feel like... Um, this is just exactly what you want to be doing. Uh, do you have a favorite? Oh, one of my favorite stories is the story about um, weed. Yeah. And teenagers, which that I reported. That was a great story. Yeah, I reported that with like my now long friend, Gemma Wiener. Um, and so this story was basically just like weed culture in different socioeconomic, uh, what is it, groups? Uh, and I thought the conclusions that we drew from there were really interesting. Um, I was just speaking about it with Gemma the other day. So that was a really fun story, I think, to report on. It was a really interesting process because we don't do a lot of co-reported stories like that, but mm-hmm. they had this, you know, they didn't know each other before, but they had this sort of, they bounced off each other in this really great way. And it was like, it, it was a fantastic creative process as a producer because it was just a completely new one, yeah. um, but completely unique to these two really interesting, engaged. I don't want to ruin the story because I want people to listen to it, but I'm, I will um, try to grab a clip and, and play a part of it. But one of the things that was just, uh, if it was timing and just you guys being in the program at the same time and that working out, but like you guys coming from such different places in terms of the schools that you were at, um, but having the shared experience around the sort of culture of what, how young people are, uh, the way uh, weed was a part of young people's culture and, and just like what, what kind of part of their life it was. Uh, it is so Weed is the great good. equalizer. It is so, so good. The thing that I loved about it the most, in addition to it just being so perfect in terms of you guys co-reporting, was you landed in a place where you actually, I have small kids, they're not that age yet, but, um, but uh, you end in this place where you kind of are like talking to parents and you're like, listen, if you want to talk to your kids about weed here are some of the things that we're taking away from the story and it was awesome let's listen to that but i mean if you've listened this far it's because you want to know how teenagers think here's our takeaway if you see a joint in your kid's room slow down that doesn't tell you anything right there it's the other choices they're making around weed that will tell you what to worry about there's a lot more to talk about than do you or don't you for WNYC, I'm rookie reporter Timmy Tyler Fagbenle, and I'm rookie reporter Gemma Weiner. That's one of my favorites that mm. I've that I've listened to so far. Thank you. So, Kari, can you tell us more about? I just want to. Um, one of the things that I've been trying to be good about is uh, we talk about programs, but to get under the hood a little bit and and talk about how it works. So, you have a role in in production and youth 
have a role in production. When I just explain the, do you want me to just explain the process? Yeah, can you just explain the process? Because I think people will be curious about where there's agency, where they're learning about a process that exists, et cetera. So our... We recruit kids usually through schools or nonprofits like Temi we met at her school. Um, Sometimes it's through community groups or the Y. And we'll partner with those organizations and we run workshops off-site for us. So we'll be, you know, at a school. And part of that is that we want kids who might not travel downtown to a radio station. They might be intimidated. They might just not leave their neighborhood or their school setting. So we want to kind of capture kids where they are. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, capture in the best sense, not in a creepy way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, and then basically we, um, you know, the beginning of our, it's, so it starts in a kind of workshop model where everyone's in a group or classroom, let's say. And there's only, you know, six or seven kids. That's not a lot of kids. Um, and in that phase, there's a lot of group work or, you know, going out and doing Vox, like we were talking about before, or just kind of learning some of the basic skills of using the equipment, using Pro Tools. But as a part of that, we're also getting to know the rookies and getting to understand what their story, what stories they might want to do and starting very early on to kind of do that story idea process, which involves a lot of um, exercises, discussions, one-on-one conversations, all kinds of ways that we can try to see what might be a story that would be appropriate or the right story for that kid. Because the kid, the teenager really has to want to do that story. If they don't, there's no way they're going to get through all that work. Mm-hmm. So you really need something that they feel excited about, but also feels like a story. You know, I mean, sometimes people have an idea and it may even be a pretty good story, but it might not be like the right story for them to do because the one thing that we always want is for them to have some kind of interesting access or point of view to the story. So it doesn't have to be personal. A lot of her stories are personal, but like Tammy was saying, she hasn't done personal stories and that's fine, but she has had this access to, you know, people to interview or, or some, some way that she's had kind of a way in to give it something. Hmm. Yeah. And an angle really. Right. And so like, even just and also introducing the young people to all these this vocabulary and then within a month we kind of have them working on a particular story and each radio rookie has their own story that they're working on it's not group work unless you're doing a uh weed story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no um uh so and then and then it's really iterative where they're going out and getting interviews and we're listening and kind of like, oh, maybe it goes in this direction. And they start kind of being paired up with a particular producer who's going to be the person who works with them. And it's mm. a very collaborative back and forth kind of process where they're getting interviews and feeding back information. And there's a lot of conversations back and forth. And the writing is, you know can start before the reporting is done but usually there has to be like a fair amount of audio to help build what the structure of a story would be and often like first drafts are very just kind of rough sketching out of what might be the story um there's a point where the producer and the radio rookie will meet with the editor who will ask all the tough questions about why should I care and who else do we need and why haven't you interviewed your mother yet and you know Mm -hmm. all the things and then there's, you know, several drafts later, there'll be another meeting with an editor and it kind of, you know, it's sort of, um, I don't know how many drafts we do. We do a lot of drafts. Mm. I mean, it goes through a lot of iterations, but you know, what I was going to say before was that, and sometimes stories aren't just aren't working out. And like Temi had been working on one story and then came in to workshop mentioned to one of the producers, Courtney Stein, that someone had told her this story about cyberbullying, sexual cyberbullying. And Courtney was like, huh, what? Wait, maybe mm. that's a story. You know, and so suddenly sometimes a story will just pop up and you, you can't ignore it. And then our production process, you know, at a certain point we're doing, like the Radio Rookie staff and the WNYC staff is doing the the actual producing of the of the, the piece itself, um, meaning the like editing of the tape and all that. Rookies learn how to load tape, cut tape, have a basic understanding of Pro Tools, but this is not, we're not doing sort of like next level Pro Tools training because we don't have the time yeah. in our process. That would be like each piece would take us even longer than they already do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How long does each piece take? I, I know mean, it varies, but. It varies. I mean, uh, the you know, the shortest was probably for 
really featurey documentary work that's not a commentary would be about four months for us. And then the longest, you know, we've worked with kids for a couple of years on things because maybe there's a legal issue that we can't, you know, tell that story until a court case has been resolved mm-hmm. or, you know, there's some sort of very specific reason. Um, but an average might be about eight months or so. Yeah. But, um, Temi, is there, was there ever a time in the process where you feel like it's not your story that like you're reporting for somebody else and it's kind of not, not, you don't feel like it's yours anymore. I'm just curious about when, when working with, uh, mentors in that capacity where like eventually they might be, and a lot of this feels, um, authentic to the way that the process for reporters works generally, um, but I'm just curious for you as a team, were you ever like, you know what, this isn't where I want to go with it? No, I think Radio Rookies did a really good job of listening to um, my input on the story. So I don't think I, I ever felt as if, um, or at the time, that I felt as if it wasn't my story. Like, there are some stories maybe that I'll listen to now, and I'll be like, yeah, that's... I would, I I think differently of that story like now, but like at the time, no, that mm-hmm. was that was what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting tension that is like certainly something that we think about a lot yeah. in terms of you know because especially when it comes to the editing process, sometimes the editor will say, well, now we, if we go here and do this, and and as a producer, often, you know, Courtney would say to me, well yeah, except that's not true, or Temi would never say that, or that, and then that's the producer's job to have been so, um, have such a clear understanding of where the Radio Rookie is coming from and, and how they've been evolving in their understanding of a subject that we, like, really want to remain truthful to that, and that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's for many reasons, what we want to, we want to stick with, even if there might be a, you know, if you could just make it up or mm-hmm. push it in another direction, that's not really true, but we really resist that. Yeah. Has the role for youth um, sort of always been at the reporter level? Have any youth risen to a place where they're producing? Yes. Um, so not a ton, <laughs> very few. Mm-hmm. Um, we've definitely had rookies who go on to mentor and go on to, you know, intern with us and, and take on different roles. We've uh, one of our former rookies came on as a producer, um, Verilyn Williams, who was a, I think she was, I think she was a rookie in, I'm trying to remember what year, maybe 2005, right? And then, um, and then years later, we hired her as a producer, and now she's working at Slate producing podcasts. So cool. I feel like I've met Verilyn, maybe. You probably have. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I wonder if there's a lot of pressure for um, programs like these uh, to sort of achieve scale. And I think there's one way to to sort of replicate rookies where students are going out and doing these kind of stories and and sort of obviously there are a lot of ways now that you could publish them yourself, um, like the format we're working in. But uh, can you... Do you feel like the role of NYC and the fact that these are being aired and produced professionally um, is a a level of value of the program that you couldn't really replace without it being there? Well, wait, I'm curious. Do you mean in terms of like the tension between going to scale and then you obviously can't scale up that level of production. That's right. So, lose, yeah. so that tension speaking yeah. to, yeah, well, that has been like a core tension for us through, yeah. and especially in terms of like a funding model for a youth development program, because, yeah. you know, funders want to see numbers of kids and, and big numbers of kids. And when you are working on like very closely on a documentary, it's, that's going to be very challenging. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, for us, we are a part of a radio station. We are not a standalone entity. And so we have um, tweaked our model and the kinds of programming we do and so that we have done sort of larger workshops that don't have the goal necessarily of doing something for air. We've also created a curriculum, which I'll send you a link to, um, so that people can take some of what we do, go into classrooms, use some of the tools and sort of 
use some of the tools of teaching interview skills and basic recording and sort of um, going through a story idea process, development process, um, as a way to empower, you know, a lot of people who are interested in doing this kind of work, but it doesn't mean that we are then out in a hundred classrooms or a thousand classrooms. Yeah. Do you guys get pressure to, um, from funders to measure the impact? Sure. <laughs> Have you met a funder that doesn't want to measure the impact? No, which is why, which is why I was curious how, how you guys do that. Well, I mean, one way is the fact that because we're at the station, we have, you know, and that we win awards and there's and we sometimes get press coverage. And, you know, tell me what magazine were you you were like profiled in a few different places. Right. But, you know, there's ways for us to look at, like, the the reach of the stories and the fact that WNYC has over a million right. listeners and that that's a part of our impact. And then additionally, we have always done a lot of sort of educational and sort of support, professional development support of people who are trying to do this work. Mm. And so we've done a lot to try to measure what has been the impact on that other end of the work. Yeah. And then, of course, we've also found that, you know, the best way for us to measure the impact on the young people has been um, more qualitative yeah. kind of tools because it just has been much more revealing. Yeah. It, especially for programs where the outcomes are um, are so such a process and so much a uh, sort of happen over the course of a lo much longer arc. It's really hard to like capture in a semester or capture in a year that you have a research grant what the impact ultimately was on somebody like Temi. Um, so it, it's uh, it's always an issue for us. So I always ask because I think uh, folks out there who are running programs like this uh, always want to know and how do we how do we show funders how valuable this is? Um, Timmy, for you, do you feel like the the connection to NYC and the level of the reporting meant a lot or could it have been you're just doing stories to, to put up on the web or, or something not as official? So do you feel like the, the awards and stuff mattered or like? I actually have no idea where any of the awards are. Um, I know I got like plaques and mm -hmm. like, I don't know where any of them are, yeah. unfortunately. Um, I'm not, I don't really speak about it too much. Yeah. It's, for me, I just really enjoyed the process. So the awards are just like, oh, okay, cool. I'm getting, going to Chicago for the weekend mm -hmm. for free. Yeah. Um, they're just like icing. Yeah. Well, I think in in a in a big way, it speaks to the quality of the experience and and uh, why young people are there. It's like you know you're there for the process and you're there for the storytelling. That you didn't care about the awards, I guess, doesn't really surprise me that much because uh, when you're doing something that you feel needs to be done or you feel is is just a, a part of a uh, thing you need to do, um, awards are nice icing on the cake, as you put it. But. Uh, I'm not surprised you weren't doing it for for yeah. the awards. Um, I'd say most kids aren't too fixated on the f the fact that there will be an audience, but there is an awareness for many. I mean, it ranges. Some some people, it's really the process, and there isn't a huge connection with that. For some, there is this real sense that people are going to hear this, mm. and that is a part of actually what is motivating and driving them. Um, and I think both are fine. We try to remind people that that that, that is happening because it can feel very like you're in a little room and mm. this, you know, you're just talking into microphones. And I then think you might see, especially with. Um, so when I was in high school, I think Instagram was like brand new. So like now you'll probably get rookies who are a little bit, I think, more aware of the fact that like this is going on the Internet. Mm hmm. Like, social media, like, I don't know, I think Facebook had just, like, recently opened up to um, people who weren't in college. Like, when I was in high school, like, a couple years back, Instagram was a new thing. Twitter was, like, still pretty, like, juvenile. I mean, like, these were, like, brand sort of new things. Like, now mm -hmm. you'll see young people who they don't remember a time before Facebook, so they've always been hyper-aware of their impact on the, on the web, and they're, like, counting followers like people count calories and so they're like they're very aware of like their image and like how to present themselves in a certain way which is almost a little bit sad to me because we'll probably lose 
a little bit of the rawness because people are like now these kids are hyper aware mm -hmm. right of their voice I definitely agree. I think one advantage to audio is that at least people aren't thinking, how do I look? Which is right. a very distracting mm. thing sometimes versus just having, you know, and after a little while, people will often forget the microphone. You know, if you talk to them long enough, maybe not forget, but at least not be fixated on yeah. it. So. You guys are a radio station, so I would guess not. But have you had pressure over time? to turn yourself into a, a video program? Here and there, not not fully a video program. Here and there, there's pressure to create visual content. We're yeah. fine with that, but no, I mean, the station is pretty clear that what we do well is audio, and mm. we, of course, we're multimedia at this point. There's a million of everything going yeah. on, but the heart and soul of the station is audio, and so that's been acceptable. Has the, has the evolution of tech um, made this work easier? Yes, definitely. In what ways? Um, well, for example, when, when I started out, we routinely worked with kids who were extremely uncomfortable on the computer um, and also very uncomfortable with the recording equipment. It was sort of really foreign. Mm. That's very rare now. Oh, that's interesting. Very rare. I mean, it's very rare that a kid would not feel comfortable on a computer in a basic way, and very rare that they wouldn't quickly feel like they had real ownership of this very simple piece of technology. We're giving them the, the flash recorders. Flash recorders. Do you guys have a go-to uh, brand? Well, what we've been using these particular Sony digital recorders, and they just the PM what is it PM fifty or something, but they just got phased out. So now we have to find oh, something no. new. Oh no! What a bummer! Bummer! I know they're so like compact and yeah. yeah. I mean, we use it with an external mic, but they've been they've done they've they've been a good steady. Uh, yeah. But I would say honestly, I mean, the thing this is really important is that the the iPhone. If you do appropriate mic placement, which is basically like, you know, you figure out where the mic is based on where you're talking into your telephone and you take your fist and you put it up next to your mouth and then right at the end of your fist there, that's where you put the, the, the speaker or the mic on your phone, you can actually record okay audio. I mean, it's mm. not gorgeous, but... It'll like, do the trick. It'll yeah. do the trick. I mean, we certainly could say to someone, oh, you don't have your equipment, just just do, do a voice memo. Yeah. There are quite a few now, too, uh, external mics that will will uh, plug either uh, mini USB or mm -hmm. lightning cable mm -hmm. right into the iPhone, and you can use the same recorder but with the benefit of the external mic, which is pretty pretty nice. I love the evolution of technology. It's just making things so much easier. Yeah. Um, Tell me, are you still reporting? In a way, yes. Yeah. About to be. Yeah, I'm about to be. Um, I was just interviewing my friends. I got some horrible audio about two weeks ago. I was trying to record us speaking about drug culture while all of us were a little bit drunk. Yeah. So it was terrible terrible interview like this terrible like group interview might end up being like your your back your b-roll your, yeah. your background noise and it's just like my like me rep like repeating the same question and finally we're all just like ah, oh, okay like let's let's stop right let's stop doing right. this because if, if there was if there's a story that's been on your mind the most that you could somebody was like here here's unlimited resources I want you to go report on it what would the story be right now so I've been thinking a lot about um just uh heroin right like what heroin is doing especially in New York City um because I, I don't it's so odd because like the heroin epidemic is here like it's here proper and it just seems to me that not enough people are speaking about it um, I think especially for people from New York City, like they think of it as like, oh, like that's like middle America, but it's like it's here. It's in mm -hmm. Staten Island, it's in the South Bronx, um, in parts of like Bushwick. And it's it's weird because like, you know, Bushwick is being gentrified. So you'll be on this block and there's like this one gentrified like side, with, like a coffee shop um, with $7 frappes or whatever. And on the opposite side, there's, like, a bunch of people sort of, like, passed out. Mm. And that's 
for it to just be like so closely juxtaposed next to each other that's interesting to me yeah so i guess that's that's been something on my mind but um just like the interaction of um trap music i don't know if you know guys know like soundcloud rap yeah it's really popular now it's a really it's a very popular genre Mm -hmm. and almost entirely these lyrics are about like xanax and like lean and like taking prescription pills Mm -hmm. and i was reflecting to my friend like a a couple of months ago i was like yeah i don't People didn't know what Xanax was before it, um, this artist named Future. He was like probably like the first real big trap artist before like Future started rapping about it. I didn't know what Xanax was. I didn't know what Lean really was. I didn't know like you could get high. I still right, don't know what Lean is. Will you tell so me? Lean is uh, I don't know. I'm smiling, but <laughs> like it's a uh, pomethazine. Uh, it's cough medicine. Mm. So it's oh. pomethazine with codeine. Okay. Yeah. So what people I do know do, what this is. I don't know it as yeah. Lean. No, it's it's like it's li- it's literally to me. It's just like liquid heroin. Like that's what it seems like. Um, so people will mix it with soda, and like they'll just like pass out. Mm-hmm. They can drink a whole like it's gross. I, yeah, I don't want to say gross, but you know, it's just not my. Troubling. Would that work? Yeah, it's a little bit troubling. Um, and so. There's this new generation of kids who are literally learning how to get high off of things from music. Mm. Right? Like, what if you've never heard of, like, Percocet, and then you're, like, listening to... Like, there, there's an artist named Little Zan... Zan Little Xanax. Like, that's... Mm. That's, like... Your 14-year-old kid is listening to that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it, I can blame trap music. But um, but it's well, a question. What the, is that relationship? I love I love that it's your question, and I look forward to hearing you uh, make up your mind because that was my favorite part of the stories I listened to. It was yeah. like listening to you go into it, you know, kind of open and and uh, hearing you make up your mind along the way. Um, I'm still making my mind <laughs> about this one. Yeah. Uh, Kari, what? This is my last question. We have a hard out, and I want to. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have uh, a long way to go. Um, when? What is the story that comes up most often that you guys say no to? Oh God! I think I'd say a, there's a genre of stories. Okay. I don't think I could say a story. I think a genre of story that we often say no to because they're really hard to do. It's not that they're not valid. Mm-hmm. Um, are sort of, it's not a story idea or even a question. It's a, it's a topic or a concern. Like I want to do something about self-esteem mm-hmm. or I want to do something about, you know, um, just something kind of vague that can be very hard to do. It may be important to the young person. We may decide we're going to do it, but they're really tough stories mm. because there isn't there isn't really a question. There's an opinion. And anyway, and then the other one is when it's something that um, a young person will sometimes pitch something that they think is like something they should do because they sort of feel like, oh, it should be important or mm. weighty. And that's fine if they want to do important and weighty things. We're not against that. But if they have no particular connection to it or real inquiry or aren't really positioned to tell it, sometimes we'll have to say, does this make sense? Or it will often evolve, you know? So, you know, they may come and say, I want to do something about homelessness. And you kind of go through a whole story process and you realize they have nothing really to connecting connecting or even deep inquiry. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you don't have to have a personal connection, but some way in beyond just I'm worried about it. No, that's because, you know, we have lots of reporters in the newsroom who are reporting on issues of housing. What are you bringing to it? Yeah, that's so interesting. And I love that through this process, young people are um, connecting the reality that stories stories get interesting when you can figure out what the questions are about how they intersect with your own uh your own story and your own interests and passions and and that's when you know reporting becomes fun um so that that seems like a powerful moment um thank you both so much for the time 
Uh, I have so enjoyed not just the conversation, but also all of the uh, time. I, I use this as an excuse to geek out on all of the rookie's previous work and, and uh, learn more about you, Temi. Is there anything um, with the fact that we just talked about how uh, sometimes it bothers you that people uh, Google you and all that comes up is uh, rookie stuff? You want to point people to anything else? No, just... Just don't Google yeah, you. Yeah, just don't Google me. It's, <laughs> it's a bit weird. Don't Google me and then tell me that you've Googled me. Just do the stealth thing that everyone else, all normal yeah, people just, do. Just keep like a normal person. Should, should we... Um, anything else you want to share that I haven't asked you? Um, so bees are dying at an alarming rate. Yeah. Throughout the world. So that. Take note. Yes. All right, I like that. Um, <laughs> I think that's a beautiful place to end. Kari, is there anything? Where should we find the rookies? Um, WMYC.org. Yeah, and then backslash Radio Rookies or just search. If you just search Radio Rookies, we'll pop right up. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about uh, slash Radio Rookies is that you can uh, stream any of the rookies' stories and, and download uh, as and well. Download. Yeah. Super cool. So um, thank you both again. This was really, really fun. Thank you. For more info about how you can sponsor No Such Thing, hit me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced in partnership with City University of New York's Master's Program in Youth Studies at SPS. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us on the web at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, and young man who I beat in a slam dunk contest in 2004. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you. And our show notes can be found at nosuchthing.wordpress.com.